Please turn in your Bibles again to John 4. To the Gospel of John, chapter 4. We already read this morning, verses 1 through 26. We're going to continue on uh, in the passage. We'll read verses 27 through 30. And then we will skip some material, move to verse 39 through verse 42. Please follow along as I read John chapter 4, beginning in verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now please skip down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray together once more. O Holy Spirit, come, put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle. Please come. Please come and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Of all the episodes and scenes that we know from Jesus' life recorded for us in the four Gospels, the narrative uh, here in John 4 of this interaction with the woman at the well has to be among the most well-known and the most beloved by Christians. There's so much, so much to love about this passage and to glean from this passage. It's only recorded in the Gospel of John, and yet how precious it is to God's people. One of the things that I love about this passage is that it makes clear beyond any shadow of a doubt that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for sinners. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, the Savior of the world, as the Samaritans say in verse 42, is a message for sinners. It's a message for this woman Five failed marriages. Think about that. Even in our day and age. Five failed marriages and now a live-in boyfriend. And the gospel goes to her. And she embraces it and believes upon Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Well, how did this happen? Well, we read in the first few verses of John 4 that Jesus had been in Judea, where Jerusalem is, engaged in ministry there. We understand that his fame is growing. It is rumored that many crowds are following him, that he's baptizing masses of people. It's rumored that he's even baptizing more than John the Baptist, who was a very famous teacher of that day. Though we learn at the beginning of John 4 that he actually wasn't the one doing the baptizing. It was Jesus' disciples. But nonetheless, Jesus' celebrity, if you will, is growing. His notoriety is increasing. His fame is spreading and so Jesus apparently makes a decision, a strategic decision, to move away from Judea into the region of Galilee. 
where he had already been ministering in the past. You'll remember in John 2, when Jesus turns water into wine, that takes place at a wedding in Galilee. Well, then he heads up to Judea. That's where the events of chapter 3 take place. And now in chapter 4, he leaves Judea to go to Galilee again. And why does he do this? Well, our text doesn't explicitly say, but it's probably that Jesus, whose hour had not yet come, remember, He's in charge of his hour. He knows when he's going to the cross. He has that planned out. And he will be responding only to the Father when it's time. But his hour had not yet come, and he's sensing perhaps that the the Pharisees and others are showing increased hostility to his ministry. It's not his time yet. Perhaps if he remained in Judea, they would come and take him by force. At this time, he moves from Judea to Galilee. In John 4, we read he's on his way to Galilee, Verse 4 says he needed to go through Samaria. So if you're a Jew of that day, you were traveling to Galilee from Judea, it was customary to pass through the region of Samaria along the way. So Jesus is on his journey through Samaria, and he stops at a city called Sychar, we read. And we're told that this city is near to Jacob's well. More on that in a minute. Jesus is tired. He's weary, perhaps, from the trip. Perhaps they had been traveling for most of the morning, we're told. It's about the sixth hour. Uh, That doesn't mean 6 a.m. They don't measure time the way we do. Uh, The sixth hour would have been actually noon in the way that that language is used. So the sun is high, the land is hot, and Jesus is worn out. He sends his disciples into the city of Sychar to buy food. He himself uh, sits beside the well, or literally in the Greek, on the well. Perhaps he was tired and wanting some refreshment. Now, having said all of that about Jesus choosing to leave Judea, headed to Galilee, making a pit stop in Sychar, sending his disciples in to buy food, sitting on the well, I don't want anyone here thinking for a second that any of this was by accident. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't that Jesus just so happened to be at the well that day. Jesus intended before the foundations of the world, the Word who created the world intended to be at that well at high noon. He intended to be alone because he had an appointment, an appointment with this woman who would come. And this interaction we read over the next 40 verses is all by divine plan. So now we're going to open up Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. I'm going to divide it into six parts. Six simple parts to his interactions with this woman. Uh, This morning I am going to pass over some material that I will pick up next time. We'll go back to these very same verses next Sunday, God willing. And next Sunday I want to ask a very specific question of the text. I want to ask, what does this text teach us about the church? And what can we learn here in this passage about the sort of church we ought to be? But that's not our concern this morning. We're not going to talk about applications for our church family and the type of church Emmanuel Church ought to be. This morning, I just want to present the narrative and cover what it is that Jesus is saying about this woman and about himself in these verses. And under each heading, I'll draw one simple lesson for our lives and for our hearts. Now, one disclaimer before we get into this passage, okay? A lot of people, a lot of Christians, a lot of preachers will go to John 4 and will preach it as a paradigm for evangelism. 
Okay, so I, how should we evangelize as Christian people? Well, let's, let's go to the scenes where Jesus is doing evangelism, like John 4, see how he does it, and then try to imitate that. I so do not want to preach that sermon this morning for a lot of reasons, but not least because that confuses the issue in this passage. We, you and I, are not Jesus in John 4. We're the woman. We're the woman who, who are thirsty and needy and, and, and needs to have these thirsts that are native to her quenched by something else. In her case, these relationships with these men. But we all thirst. We all have needs. We are the woman in this passage. And like her, we need Jesus who is living water. So don't miss that in our time together this morning. All right, my headings are not fancy. They're simply descriptive of what takes place. The first is this. Jesus initiates a conversation with the woman. Jesus initiates a conversation with the woman. Please look with me at verses 7 through 9. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And then there's this parenthetical statement. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus is alone, and it's noon, and this woman from Samaria shows up to draw water, and Jesus, being weary from his journey, asks her to give him a drink. It's not just because he's thirsty. He's drawing her into interchange that he's going to have with her. And, and it's this question Jesus asked about getting a drink from the woman that prompts her to say the words of verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? So we need to talk about Jews and Samaritans for a minute. A lot of context to a statement like that. What is she referring to what's going on with those words from the woman. Very simply, the fact is that Jews hated Samaritans. And there's, there's no polite way to say it. Jews hated Samaritans, and Samaritans, for their part, hated Jews as well. They were bitter enemies. They were religious rivals. Lots of bad blood between Jews and Samaritans. So I'm going to read a section from uh, D.A. Carson's commentary on this verse that talks about the relationship between Jews and Samaritans to sort of explain where did this bad blood come from? Why don't they like each other? And why is it a big deal that a Jewish man and a woman from Samaria are talking together? So Carson says this in his commentary. After the Assyrians captured Samaria in 722 BC, they deported all the Israelites of substance and settled the land with foreigners who intermarried with the surviving Israelites and adhered to some form of their ancient religion. After the exile, Jews returning to their homeland viewed the Samaritans not only as the children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. One example would be that Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, whereas the Jews, of course, had the canon that we have, but the Samaritans only embraced those first five books. Carson goes on to say, about 400 B.C., the Samaritans erected a rival temple on Mount Gerizim toward the end of the second century B.C. And this was destroyed by John Hyrcanus, the Hasmonean ruler in Judea. This combination of events fueled religious and theological animosities. There's centuries of history here 
undergirding this animosity, this tension that exists between Jews and Samaritans. There are ethnic and social and religious issues going on here. The Jews disdain the Samaritans. They are ceremonially unclean, they're ethnically unpure, they're religiously heretical, and therefore they are to be avoided. Jews hated Samaritans. In fact, it's probably accurate to say that the Jews would have felt more antipathy toward a Samaritan woman than they would have their pagan overlords, the Romans. So this is the tension to which the woman refers in verse 9 when she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then there's this curious statement at the end of verse 9, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, that's not a great translation. Okay, if you read it from the ESV, that's what the ESV renders it. There are only two words here in the Greek which the ESV is translating have no dealings with. Jews, two Greek words, Samaritans. Have no dealings with Samaritans. Those words are su and sukrontai. Su means no or not, and then you have this strange Greek word sukrontai. This is the only place in the whole Bible that this word is used. And it means to use together with. To use together with. The idea is more that Jews don't use things after Samaritans have used them. They don't mix. They don't eat at the same buffets. They don't drink from the same water fountains. They don't mix. Jesus is asking to have a drink from this woman's bucket, and it's like her jaw drops, like, I've never heard of a Jew drinking after a Samaritan. We don't share the same wells, the same buckets. We don't eat at the same restaurants. We have separately labeled water fountains. Okay, that's more the idea with this word sukrontai. Jesus is inserting himself right into the heart of extreme ethnic and religious tension. I also think it's notable that the text highlights that she is a woman from Samaria. We'll learn later that she's a loose woman from Samaria, a woman of ill repute, and Jesus crosses the gender barrier as well to engage with her in this setting. All I want to observe is that in every way this woman should be regarded, at least with reference to a Jewish man like Jesus, as one of the untouchables of society. But he doesn't see her that way. Jesus is going to have her as his own by the end of the day. Before the afternoon is up, he will be her savior. He's going to have her and he's willing to cross those divides. Well, what's the lesson for us? Very simply, if Jesus is the savior of the world, he is the savior of the Samaritans as much as he is the savior of the Jews. If you've been with us in the series, John 3, who does Jesus interact with there? Nicodemus, right? Jesus is the savior of pious, religious, church-going folk like Nicodemus. And he's also the savior of needy, thirsty, broken Samaritan women like this woman here in our text. Both need to acknowledge their need of Jesus. Both need to come to him as a savior. The love of the Father and the mission of the Son cross boundaries. And indeed, they break down boundaries. This woman's Samaritan heritage is no obstacle to Jesus going after her. Convention and culture says, I'm not supposed to look at you. I'm not supposed to talk to you. I'm not supposed to touch you. I'm not even supposed to drink after you've had a drink from that same bucket. 
but I'm going in, I'm going after you. And he will have her by the time the afternoon is up. Second major point, Jesus tells the woman of living water. Jesus tells the woman of living water. Look with me at verses nine through 15. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The woman is taken aback by Jesus' request for a drink and more or less says to him, well, who do you think you are? How is it that you ask a drink from me? Jews don't associate with Samaritans. So what does Jesus say? He essentially says, you don't know who I am, lady. I'm not just some Jew. If you knew who I was, you would ask about what I bring, namely living water, and I would have given it to you. I'm not just a Jew asking for a drink. I'm someone so much greater who gives something amazing to anyone who would ask, even a Samaritan woman, and I'd give you living water if you asked it of me. And the woman clearly does not understand what he's talking about. She says, verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She thinks he's talking about H2O, right? Like, like physical water. And we see here what we've seen already in a number of places in John's gospel that Jesus is so often operating on one level and the people he's talking with are at another. So he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, okay, where can I find a womb big enough to crawl in? Jesus is like, that's not what I'm talking about. You're unbelieving, you're hard-hearted, you're sinful, you're not seeing what I'm revealing to you. Like this woman, he says, I have living water. And she says, where? I don't see it. I don't even have a bucket to draw this water with. She says, She's unbelieving. She doesn't have faith. She's hard-hearted. She doesn't see what he's getting at. She needs to have her eyes open. So she says, verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now, the Jews as well as the Samaritans, remember, they both had the first five books of the Old Testament. They both claimed Jacob to be their father. And this was, in fact, the well that Jacob had constructed that he himself drank from and the woman is, in essence, saying, you offer living water. You say that your water is better than this water. Are you saying you're better than our father Jacob? The assumption in her statement is, of course not. Are you saying you're greater than our father Jacob? Okay, spoiler alert. He's way better than Jacob, okay? He's Jacob's Lord, Jacob's God, Jacob's Savior, but she doesn't know that yet. And I so appreciate, it's one of the sweetest things about the text, it's a latent blasphemy in her statement, right? Oh, you're saying you're better than Jacob? Of course, he's not better than Jacob, right? And instead of turning on her and exoriating her for her lack of faith and her blasphemy, 
Jesus so tenderly and sweetly unfolds this for her. I mean, he could have ground her into powder then, turned her into a toad or something like that, or banished her to hell for her blasphemy. But instead, sweetly, tenderly, he's going to unfold what it is that he means. He's patient and gentle with her, and what a model he is uh, to us in that. And so he unravels this for her. It says, verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is in effect saying, yes, ma'am. I am greater than Jacob, and I have a gift that is greater than Jacob's. The water you drink from this well, given to you from your father Jacob, it will never satisfy your thirst. But I have water. I bring water. I offer water that will satisfy You see, Jesus' water is not a physical well you have to go to again and again. He tells us it's a spiritual fountain that bubbles over and perpetually replenishes itself so that if you stand there with your mouth open, water is perpetually falling into your mouth. He is a spring of water that he gives to all those who ask it of him such that they will never thirst again. Perpetually will have their thirst satisfied and quenched and they will have living water. Well, what is this water he's talking about? What does he mean by living water? My personal opinion is that living water is itself eternal life. I think the living water that we read springs up into everlasting life is eternal life itself. And those who have the eternal life that Jesus brings will never thirst. They'll have all their desires and needs satisfied. And we we see here, as we'll see in other places, the idea of eternal life, which is so prominent John's gospel, which is offered to those, is the reward of those who believe on Jesus. It's not simply an outcome. It's not simply like quantity of days, like I'll live forever. Eternal life is a quality of life. It's a life you enter into when you believe on Jesus. And it's that gift of life by which you will never thirst again. You'll have your needs satisfied. You'll have your needs met in Jesus, the deepest heart desires of your heart. Those thirsts we don't even know how to talk about with our spouses and with our friends and our family. Those thirsts will be met in the Lord Jesus and you will never thirst again. So now the woman says, verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. In other words, she's saying you have living water, like a fountain somewhere I can go to? You mean this water you would give would satisfy my thirst forever? Do you mean I wouldn't have to come here anymore and draw water? Now why does she say that last part? So I won't have to come here anymore. Why is this woman alone? It's high noon. It's all by herself drawing water. Certainly other women in the town drew water, right? They probably would have come in the early morning hours or in the evening so as to avoid the hot sun, but this woman comes alone because she has something to hide. This woman has reason to be ashamed, and so she comes at noon under the hot sun, bearing her shame, seeking to satisfy her thirst, and we're going to learn in a minute that her life is riddled with sin and shame, and she, even in her own hometown of Sychar, is an outcast. And so she bears her shame at high noon, all by herself. 
So now she hears of someone who can satisfy her thirst, give her living water, and she thinks, you mean, I won't have to come here anymore? Under the hot sun, being exposed like this, carrying my heavy water bucket, you can give me living water so that I don't have to deal with this anymore or go through this sort of rejection and shame? But what's the lesson we can learn under this second heading? Simply this. In the gospel, Jesus offers a solution to our thirst. Solution to our hunger, to our deep heart desires. Listen, Christian or non-Christian, we all thirst. We all hunger, we all grow weary, we all feel lonely, right? It is among the many marvels of the gospel of Jesus that he says to the thirsty, I will satisfy your thirst. In fact, if you have me, you will never thirst again. He says to the hungry, I give to you the bread of life, no more hunger. He says to all those who are weary, heavy laden, come to me, I'll give you rest. He says to those who come sinful and needy, I will be a savior to you. He says to the lonely, come inside, I'll make you warm, I'll make you safe, come to me and I will be a friend to you and a brother to you and a savior to you. My friend, you thirst, you do thirst, we thirst, we all thirst and perhaps that's why we're always panting after other things. The businessman who pants for financial gain and for approval at work, the woman who pants after an attractive and well-ordered family, the young man who pants after personal pleasure and gratification, the young woman who pants after beholders who will make much of her, the person who pants after money or sex or a good time or a cheap thrill or the praise and good opinion of those around them. We're a thirsty people. We're panting after all kinds of things to satisfy our native thirsts and hungers and cravings. We pant after all the wrong things. And Jesus says here in our text, I'm the solution to your thirst. Verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. This water, fill in the blank. What well are you going to? What water do you pant after and you're trying to go to again and again to satisfy your thirst, be it money or pride or sex or praise, approval, good times with family that you just want to never end? The, the family lunch at River Birch Lodge that you wish could go on forever or, or the Thanksgiving or all the family birthdays and events and you just want to bring your chicks close and you return to that well again and again and that's life for you. It'll never satisfy. Look, your kids will never satisfy you. Your spouse will never satisfy you. Don't go to those wells expecting the sort of water that only Jesus can give you. Those who come to him will have in them a spring of living water and they will never be thirsty again. Third major heading. Jesus has initiated a conversation with a woman. He's told living water. Thirdly, Jesus exposes the woman's sinful past. Jesus exposes the woman's sinful past. Now we begin to get to the issue. Verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, okay, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
Jesus has just gotten done telling the woman of living water that he offers to all those who ask of him, but he doesn't stay there long. In a seemingly abrupt way, he tells this woman, okay, you think you want the water that I offer. She's still thinking on an unbelieving plane. She thinks H2O, right? It's okay, okay, you think you know what you want. Go and call your husband. Let's talk about this together. And she says, I, I have no husband, which is true. Jesus knows her from beginning to end, and he didn't just know about her when he sat down on that well at high noon and he saw her. He knew her before the foundations of the world. Five husbands, and now this boyfriend, relationship to relationship to relationship. Jesus is pinpointing what surely was the greatest source of shame to this woman. And the greatest source of her thirst the well that she was trying to drink from to satisfy herself. Jesus was not talking about physical thirst. There is a greater thirst this woman has. He was not talking about material need. There's a greater need this woman has deep in her soul. Five failed marriages and a lover on the side. She's thirsty. She's going from relationship to relationship, companion to companion, serial sex to get what she wants. This woman has a thirst that she seems to think men can satisfy. Perhaps her past was filled with abuse. We don't know. Perhaps these men used her and abandoned her. We don't know that. It could be that she was the one using them. We don't know. We know that apparently she's not without guilt. She's not without sin in the matter, and she's going from man to man seeking to satisfy something, seeking to quench her thirst. Bottom line, this has destroyed her life. This is why she goes out of town in the middle of the day carrying a heavy water bucket, bearing her shame and her reproach. Her life is a broken and sinful mess, and Jesus is determined to expose this and to bring this to life. He wants to get it out on the table and show her that her need, her sin, her shame is greater than she wants to admit. Now, why does Jesus do this? It's because he's just a meanie. I want you to know what you did. Is that the spirit here? Not at all. It's because he loves her. and He wants to be for her everything that she needs. He wants to give her living water that can satisfy her and doesn't want to see her waste herself on these men, one after another. He wants to open her heart to the needs and sin and guilt and shame that are there so that he can come in and give to her eternal life to satisfy her and to give her living water. But, but see, the sin must be acknowledged. It must be exposed. It must be brought to light that she's needy and she's thirsty and she's sinful. and She needs what Jesus brings. Well, what's the lesson for us? Lesson number three. Jesus requires that people look their sin in the face and call it what it is. Jesus requires people to acknowledge their thirst and their need of him. There's no salvation until sin is acknowledged. Everyone here needs to know that. There can be no salvation until sin is forthrightly acknowledged for what it is. And listen, I'll just help you along the way, okay? Jesus already knows. 
You might think you're hiding something. Jesus already knows. I'm speaking to the Christian and the non-Christian here. He knows. He knows the darkest crevices of your heart that you yourself don't even want to acknowledge. He knows the things you've never told anybody. The thoughts you've had, the words you've spoken, the deeds you've done. He knows it all. That should have a dual effect on us. First of all, it should cause us to experience profound shame. Profound shame. There was a time when I thought that shame was exclusive to the Christian life, that somehow Christians should not experience shame. I don't think that holds weight according to the scriptures. Christians should routinely feel ashamed of themselves. When we sin before a holy God, in the face of all of his grace, we ought to feel ashamed. We shouldn't feel condemnation, fear, and dread the wrath of God, but we should experience some measure of shame in the face of our sins. Our souls are naked and laid bare before God. The Bible uses that imagery of, of, of us standing before God as, as naked. Now, I'm not trying to be lurid or sensational, but you could imagine if you had to stand on this stage exposed in that way and unclothed. Everything that you hold is private and, 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 and something that should be covered is now laid bare and you feel ashamed. That's the standing of our souls before a holy God. He knows our sin thoroughly. The very worst things about you that you don't even want to acknowledge yourself, he knows. And that should generate shame in us. But there's a second effect, the knowledge that Christ knows all should have on us. And that's profound joy. Profound joy. Because even though he knows everything about me, just the darkest crevices of my heart where all the grease and the grime and the guilt are, he knows it all. He knows more than my spouse knows. He knows more than my kids know. He knows more than my pastor knows. He, he knows it all. And even though he knows it all, he offers himself to me. His love for me and his free offer of eternal life and of grace is not based on some fiction about me. It's not based on some sort of fantasy version of me. It's utterly realistic knowledge he has about us in every detail. And with that knowledge, he offers himself in grace to us. So I, I know you better than you know yourself and I offer myself to you. I should just cause our hearts to run out to him in faith. I have nothing to hide. I have nothing to hide from him. He knows every detail of my life and of my heart and of my mind. And with the fullest and most complete and thorough knowledge about me, he offers himself to me to give me eternal life. It should fill us with unspeakable joy. And it should have filled this woman with unspeakable joy. He already knows. I, I know about the men. I know about the relationships. I know about the abuse. I know about the promiscuity. I know about your boyfriend. Let me, just, let me just help you get there, okay? And let's talk about what we can do now to address it. Jesus knows us thoroughly. Fourth point, Jesus teaches this woman regarding true worship. We'll move more quickly now. Jesus teaches this woman regarding true worship. Now this may seem odd. This may seem like a curveball in the dialogue. Jesus has just exposed this woman's deepest, darkest secret. Then we read in verse 19 through 24, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, 
The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So much can be said here. We can't say it all. We're going to look at these verses in more detail next week when we consider some of the implications of this passage for the church. But I do want to observe a few things here. First of all, I don't believe, as some have argued, that this question from the woman was random or an effort on her part to deflect. I hear a lot of people say that, that, well, Jesus just exposed her sin, and she doesn't want to talk about that, and so she brings up a theological question about where to go to church. I don't think that's what's happening here. I could be wrong, but I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think we're to imagine that she was embarrassed by Jesus' line of questioning. Now she wants to change the subject. I think her question is sincere. I think it's sincere. She clearly acknowledges that there's something special about Jesus. <laughs> you know all about me. I didn't tell you about those husbands. I perceive you must be a prophet. She's in the presence of someone special. Now, what all she understands about him at this point, we don't know. But I think she realizes her life is laid bare to him. I think she feels broken and needy and exposed to him. And there's perhaps a strange safety she feels with him. Well, there's nothing left to hide. I can ask him all my questions about God, about worship, about Jews and Samaritans. And so she goes right to the heart of the issue. Now she has a Jewish prophet before her. So she asks him, what would have been the burning hot topic question between Jews and Samaritan. She said, let's just have it out right now. Let's talk about this. She asks him where the proper place of worship ought to be. Is it Mount Jerusalem, where the Jews worship, or Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans say God is to be worshipped? Which one is it? Who is right? I don't think this is just a curveball, speculative, theological question from this woman. I've just never found that explanation compelling. I suspect, though I can't prove this, that there's another layer to the question. This woman's thirst and need and brokenness and sin are out on the table, right? It's all out there on the table. There's nothing left to hide. And you see, these mountains were not just where the Jews and Samaritans went to church. Like, you go to Emmanuel Church, this person goes to Trinity Church, to Hope Church. It's not like that. See, these mountains were the exclusive location of where God met people. If you wanted to meet God in those days, you went to his temple. And it was really important that you knew where that temple was to be. There was special access you had to God in the confines of that temple. So I understand her question basically to be, where is God? Okay, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Where is God? Where do people meet him? Where can I meet him? How can I enter into relationship with him? Where, where is God? All right, my needs are all out there for everybody to see. I know I need some. So where is he? And how can I enter into relationship with him? Briefly notice three things about Jesus' response. We'll consider these in detail next week. First, he points out that the question 
of the specific place where the Father ought to be worshipped will soon be irrelevant. Really doesn't matter what your tradition says. You Samaritans say it's in Mount Gerizim. We say it's in Jerusalem. That's about to become irrelevant. The, the age is shifting. We're about to enter the new covenant. And we won't worship on this mountain or that mountain. Second point Jesus makes, he does fall decisively on the side of the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. Like, you got it wrong, lady. It's about to be irrelevant that you got it wrong, but you did get it wrong. You, you do need those other books of the Old Testament, and you need those covenants of promise that told of the Christ who is to come, and you're gonna need that Christ who comes from the line of David. You need the salvation that comes from the Jews. He does fall on the side of the Jews in the debate. Thirdly, Jesus emphasizes that the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. This new age is dawning, and the Father is seeking after people who will worship him. Implied in that statement, is he, he would seek after you, lady. He wants people who will worship him in spirit and truth. It doesn't matter if they're black. It doesn't matter if they're white. It doesn't matter if they're Jewish or Samaritan. It doesn't matter on which mountain they've been worshiping. God is seeking true worshipers now. And for the purpose of this sermon, we'll explore what it means to worship in spirit and truth. That'll be for next week. But all I mean to point out in Jesus' words is that God is seeking true worshipers. And Jesus, the Savior of the world, is calling this woman to be a true worshiper. He's saying, forget about the issue of where you ought to worship. Focus on the object, me. And this invitation of God to draw worshipers to himself. You could imagine where this interaction might have left this woman. She's thirsty, that's been exposed. She's ashamed, her sin is all out on the table, there's nowhere to hide. And now she learns that her whole religious heritage is bankrupt. There is nothing for you on Mount Gerizim. You're not gonna get out of this by just going to the right mountain to worship God. No salvation in her religion. She's been looking for God and looking for salvation in the wrong place and she's been worshiping what she does not know. What hope could she have now for salvation. I don't even know where God is. She's about to learn that hope is right before her. Lesson number four under this heading, very briefly. In this new covenant age we live in now, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is after worshipers. He's after worshipers. And he's gathering them from all over the world. The Father is seeking people to worship him. The Father is seeking people to worship Him. The Father is seeking people to worship Him. He wants worship, and if you're called by God, you are called first and foremost to be a worshiper. God's not after peers. He's not after buddies. He's after people who will worship Him in spirit and truth. The, the gospel call is a call to salvation, and it is a call to worship the one true and living God. And God calls you, each one of you. He is seeking worshipers. Fifth major heading, Jesus reveals to the woman that he is the Messiah. He reveals to the woman that he is the Messiah. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
She's got nothing left. Well, I know Messiah is coming. Maybe when he comes, there'll be a solution to my problems. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. He says something to her. He didn't say to anybody else in the entire gospel, at least not with his clarity. He didn't say this to Nicodemus. Hinted at it, didn't just come out and say it. He tells this woman plainly that he is the Messiah. You want living water, you want your sins forgiven, you want to see the shift of the age that will make salvation available to the world and will allow non-Jews to worship God rightly in spirit and truth. You want to see the Messiah? I who speak to you am he. I'm before you. Jesus reveals himself to her in a way that's utterly unique and wonderful. Is he not the savior of the world? He's with Nicodemus, religiously upright, hair parted to the right side, uh, performing all the right ceremonies and rituals. Does it come out and tell him this? Now he's on Samaritan soil with a Samaritan woman, no less, a loose Samaritan woman who's had five husbands, one of the untouchables of society, and he says to her, I who speak to you am the Christ. Like, I'm, I'm here for you. I'll just lay it out as clearly as I can. I who speak to you am he. Lesson number five. Jesus is willing to reveal himself to the broken and to the needy. Listen, you need only one qualification to come to Jesus. That's to know that you're a needy sinner. It's the only qualification you need. By now, this woman knew it. She literally has not a thing to bring to Jesus. But she's been exposed. She's seen her sin. And now Jesus reveals himself to her. And we see, sixthly and finally, the woman's response. Verse 27 just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They thankfully knew better than that. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Verse 39 says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is minor and by no means the purpose of the text, but I love that little detail. Back up in verse 28, she left her water jar. She left her water jar. She could kiss that bucket goodbye. I don't need that anymore. She's leaving that way of life. I found something better. She left her water jar. Some of you may remember when you came to Christ, and you can remember your water jar with which you were drawing and drawing, and you were panting after this or that. To come to Christ means you've got to kick that bucket goodbye. But she had found something far better. She had found the living water, the eternal life that Jesus Christ brings. And what happens? Because of this woman's testimony, many believe. She leaves her water jar, she runs into town, and she talks to the 
the men no less, who have known all about her past and probably rejected her. Part of the reason why she's out at the well at noon. She runs and tells them, here's a man who's told me everything about my life. Yeah, I know you guys know about it too, but he knew it. Never met me before. He told me everything about myself. And they go out, and they meet Jesus for themselves. And they invite him back, and many in this Samaritan village believe upon Jesus. Is he not the Savior of the world? I mean, he's the Savior of men and women, right? He's the Savior of Jews and Samaritans. And he will be the Savior of neat and tidy sinners like Nicodemus, sinners like this Samaritan woman who just have it all out there for everybody to see. The only qualification is that you go to him as a sinner, and that's where I'd like to end this message. So one qualification. Do you feel your need for a Savior? Then run out to Jesus. Doesn't matter what you've done. Do you know you're empty and thirsty and hungry and needy? Jesus already knows. You can't hide a thing from Jesus. And it's with that complete and thorough and total knowledge of you. He says, come, come to the well and drink. I will give living water to all those who thirst. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what you've thought. Doesn't matter what's lurking in those dark corners in your heart. Come to me and I'll satisfy you. This gospel is for sinners. It's for people who are going to the wells of serial relationships like this woman. It's for people who don't know how to tame their tongue and stop gossiping. For all kinds of sinners. Doesn't matter which well you're going to. Doesn't matter what you're trying to find, what sinful pleasures you're going to to satisfy your thirst. If you know your need, just like this woman, Jesus has come, I'll give you living water. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it was said of you in John chapter two that you yourself know what is in the heart of man. Don't let any of us in this room hide from you. You already know. You already know. Cause us as sinners just like this woman to run out to you acknowledging our need for you, our thirst and our hunger. And may we find satisfaction and salvation in the Lord Jesus. Cause us to embrace the solution that he provides for our sin, the salvation that he brings. Don't let us hide. Don't let anyone here hide. May we come into the light. And may we come to the one who offers eternal life and a solution to our thirst. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.